The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning. Good morning. I had to give my wife my phone because if I don't, every time the bills score today, my dad's going to text me and I'm going to be standing here. (laughs) You know, and... uh, I didn't want you guys to think that we'd become an extremely Pentecostal church. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Amen. Let me pray to start our morning. Father, I thank you that uh, we get to come here and we get to enjoy your word together, that we get to celebrate you together. God, that even when things are hard, we are reminded of a place that we come where others think the best of us, that love us, that want what's best for us, that encourage us, that point us to you, Father. And I pray that we would grow to be more and more a community that does that. In your name, amen. Throat's been a little funny today, so bear with me here. Peter loves Jesus, but keeps making big life mistakes. Does that story sound familiar? Peter is one of the most prominent characters in the New Testament. He is one of the first people to follow Jesus and one of the first to understand Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. He is also deeply flawed. Peter hurts Jesus more often than he helps, but Jesus never stops loving and leading him. In this sermon series, you will learn how a strong and beautiful faith can come from deeply flawed individual who faithfully follows Jesus. If you are just joining us today in our series, I encourage you to go back and listen to the four previous sermons on either our podcast, The Refuge Church, or our YouTube channel, at The Refuge Church. Um, so that you can catch up and just enjoy this series as one thing together. Um, And I want to kind of catch you guys up to speed because a lot has happened between the transfiguration on the mountain and where we find ourselves this week. Jesus had revealed himself as God to Peter, John, and James on the mountaintop. You remember Daniel said that. And since coming down from the mountain, they've joined back up with the other disciples and they're continuing on their journey. And they're moving all along the Galilean countryside. I was talking to Daniel this week, just kind of how everything was together. Like it wasn't a ton of long distance traveling, right? And that's probably one of the biggest shocking things we're going to see as we read. Um, And Jesus is giving many sermons and speaking in parables and people are just really enamored and amazed at Jesus' wisdom as he's telling them about the kingdom of God, about what God's like and um, what it looks like. If you want to be first, you're going to make yourself last. Anyone who wants to be great is going to become slave to all um, and things like that and God and what fairness looks like in God's eyes. And not much later from these many sermons and parables that he's telling, we see the triumphal entry where Jesus is coming through on the foal of a donkey, right? This little donkey. And people are waving palm branches and screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
And then we go from there. We have this moment where Jesus goes into the temple, right? And he sees that people have made the temple this great money-making business, but it's everything that God had never wanted it to be. So he's flipping tables and getting angry. One of the most rare times we see Jesus just angry at someone or something that his anger is just unleashed, right? And at the same time, children are singing Hosanna to the son of David. And that has to be an incredible sight, right? In that moment. And I missed that until I read through it again. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty, pretty crazy. That must have been weird for everyone while that was all happening that they were singing, right? The religious leaders were so annoyed by everything that Jesus was doing that they saw him as a threat and that something had to be done about this Jesus. So the leaders and the local leaders, the local authority and the religious leaders are gathering together in the most important chief priest's house, Caiaphas. It was during this time that they started to put together this plot to kill Jesus. And one of Jesus's 12, Judas, had gone to the same group that had been plotting and something had changed inside of him because he was willing to trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which in study, thinking through this, you would find out that 30 pieces of silver at this time was not really a lot of money. It was actually a very small amount. If a servant of someone was gored by an ox, the slave or servant master who owns that ox is going to pay for that gore 30 pieces of silver. So that's what Jesus' arrest was worth to the eyes of the religious leaders, the local authorities. It was a slap in the face. This person that we're very annoyed with, angry with, we realize has a lot of power, isn't worth much, not to us, but yet at the same time, they really wanted him. It's just kind of weird or curious. Around this time, many people were coming together from all over to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. In keeping with the tradition and to celebrate together, Jesus was bringing the disciples all together. And so he sends Peter ahead to make preparations at this house. And the disciples were all together with Jesus enjoying this feast. And this is the same scene where Jesus teaches them about what I was talking about earlier. How does the great become greatest by making themselves last. He washes the feet of the disciples. You guys remember that? We talked about that recently. And Jesus gives us that firsthand example of what being great is. So Jesus and the closest 12 people to him were sitting around enjoying this feast together. But this night was going to be different. And that's where we come to our story today. And thinking of a story that kind of fits with what we're going to talk about today, I was kind of thinking about kind of like a darker experience in my life, kind of something that I experienced that um, maybe not a lot of people know. Maybe Susanna knows. I don't know if I talked to her a lot about it. But uh, I was thinking about when I first moved to Washington State, and I was working part-time at a Starbucks. You know, I had my girlfriend, Susanna. She's my girlfriend at the time. And I knew some of her family members. I wasn't I didn't really, I hadn't known them, although we dated for four years in New York. I had just met them when I moved here. So we kind of had this life, and, and they were being added to it. Um, but I didn't really know them. I was new to the area. 
and I can definitely use friends. I remember feeling so frustrated because University Place was really wild compared to where I'm from, which is a very podunk country area in upstate New York. If you ask somebody to hang out where I'm from, you would probably be able to hang out 30 minutes before your planned time because there's nothing to do there. I think we had two fast food establishments, a couple bars and a grocery store that you could walk through all hours of the night. But Washington was different. And I remember I would ask people to hang out that I worked with or even people that I met and they'd be like, oh yeah, sure, let's do that. And then when it came down to the actual time of hanging out, they were never to be found. I was either blown off or um, it just never materialized. There was always an excuse. And what I really needed was a friend. I needed someone to be there for me. But we'd get all the way up to hanging out and then something would happen. And I truly believe most people that I had met predominantly coworkers, were all well-meaning people. Like, I don't think they were doing it because they're vicious, mean, angry, maybe because I'm unlikable. But when it came down to it, we never really hung out because there was always a reason. Or, um, you know, I kind of felt deserted or by myself. What I needed was friendship, true friendship, but each time these meetups never came to fruition, I felt denied. Have you ever felt denied? Maybe it's not friendship. Maybe it's something else. Maybe, so in the moment of great need, instead of the result we might hope for, we a lot of times will get excuses or pushback. And you could take a million different scenarios and put it in place there. Or how about what we've done to others? What about moments where there was a clear opportunity to meet someone else's need, but instead of doing what our heart tells us we should do, or what we believe God has told us to do, we respond with half-hearted effort or maybe even a list of excuses. Some of us would probably admit that we are good at making excuses. We all have our reasons. And that's what I want you to think about as you think about the big question this morning. I want to change it a little bit, but I want to revert that to, have you denied Jesus? Our big idea is that if we stop, we stop denying Jesus when we believe his words are always true. And we have two passages this morning that we're going to look at, and they're going to illustrate two things. One, which I believe, what we wish was true, and two, what is actually true about the situations that we find ourselves in. Our passages this morning are hinged together in a way where it shows a story. And I didn't get much comfort from these stories initially. These passages, in my mind, as I was reading them, were extremely dark. And didn't bring me much hope until maybe I read them through a million times and then realized, I think it's in the middle of it. And we, we might talk about that a little bit. But what I want you to walk away with this morning outside of our topic, is that Jesus knows what to do with darkness. That darkness that I said that those passages seem steeped in. The feast that had been prepared was now drawing to a close. They had eaten together, they were conversing and laughing, and even ended the meal in a song. This is a beautiful time where friends were together. They felt whole. 
The disciples were gathered around, much like we gather around when we are together. And Jesus becomes serious. And that's where we're going to look at our text this morning. Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Then Jesus told them this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. There's our hope. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And then I'm going to go right into the next passage too. So Matthew 26, 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, and I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So let's look at the first piece. It's one, what we wish were true. That's the first thing I want you to notice, what we wish were true. That's that first passage. This first passage is a dialogue between two people. You have Jesus, you have Peter. They both make an equal amount of statements. One statement is given, one statement is replied, one statement is given, one statement is replied. The other disciples are present, but the talking is mainly between Jesus and Peter. No one present is a stranger at this point. So there's no new character or person in there that isn't aware of who Jesus is. They had been with him for three years, and a lot happens in three years. They had seen the way Jesus conducts himself. They would have seen Jesus' values. They would have picked up on his mannerisms was a word that was shared with me by a friend this week. I was thinking about how my wife laughs like one of her best friends. When you spend time with people, you a lot of times pick those things up, right? Does anyone have a friend like that? Or maybe you are looking more and more like your spouse. That's another thought I had. Um, they had experienced his teachings and had witnessed him healing people all along the Galilean countryside. They knew Jesus. They knew Jesus loved them and they loved Jesus. This Jesus starts our conversation. Then Jesus, this meal is over, the disciples were together, and Jesus is being serious, and he's pulling them together, right? And he says, this very night, you will fall away on account of me. And he makes three very curious statements when he makes that statement. Underneath it, he says, the shepherd will be struck, the flock will be scattered. When I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And these were not questions. These were definitive statements that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, I am going to die, which he had talked about previously many times throughout this book and all through the Gospels. 
You will all desert me after I have died. So you're going to all go. You will scatter. You will leave me. But I will rise and I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. And I think the first two statements, you know, we see those. They're repeated from Zechariah 13.7. And the last is fulfilled later in the book of Matthew. Because if you go to Matthew 28, it talks about when they meet up after his resurrection. And they're together again. So these all have come true. They're going to come true at this point. Um, this evening, two of those are going to happen. And Jesus had been preparing them. They were aware that he was going to die. He had spoken of this multiple times. But how, how curious must it have sounded when he said, and when I have risen, I'm going to come back and we're going to meet up down the road. I think, you know, it's funny because I think we would all have been sitting there, you know, almost like if we're eating a meal or, or just hanging out together, right? And he's like, yeah, something's going to happen tonight. This is what's going to happen. This is going to happen. Then he's like, yeah, and I'm going to come back and you're going to meet up with me. And then I think that's the point where we would probably double take and be like, wait, what? Because, I mean, a lot of us, hopefully, well, I'm thinking most of us have not met somebody that's like, yeah, I came back from the dead. <laughs> like, that's kind of interesting. Um, but it's curious. And it's funny because we don't see a pause in what, Peter responds when he responds. He just kind of jumps in and says something. And I think this is impulsivity because if you remember a couple weeks ago in the definition that I had read, it had talked about how Peter was impulsive. And I think that's what he was doing. I think it was kind of like when your friends talk to you, right? And they're trying to comfort you. And, and I'm going to explain this a little better, but um, have you ever like talked to one of your friends and you're like, you know, I do this all the time. I'm like, I think there's something wrong with me, or I think I'm sick. Like, I have this pain, and this pain that I'm feeling, I, I really got to... And your friend, what do they do immediately? Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're okay. They're not a doctor, guys. How would they know? It's like when you ask somebody for their opinion about something, and they don't even know the people that you're talking about. They could never know because they don't know the details. They're kind of like, right away, they're just like, yeah, I'm just trying to be there for a friend. I'm doing my best. It's a good intention. Lots of good intentions. Kind of like the friends that I had earlier, right? They, they meant well. They wanted to hang out. It's just when the rubber hit the road, it just didn't happen. And I think Peter really believed what he was saying was the right thing at the time he was saying it. I just think he didn't realize the disbelief in his heart. I don't think he, he knew that he wasn't fully there, that he, that he couldn't do it. He couldn't do what he was saying. Um, and I think it's, it's really interesting as I thought more and more about it, um, what he actually does do, even though um, he doesn't um, fulfill his side of things. So great intentions. And this is Peter. Even if all fall away tonight, Jesus, I won't. Peter had no idea what this night would look like, kind of like your friends are not doctors. I think he believed he was saying the right things. I think ultimately he wanted to be faithful, but there was still disbelief in his heart. He was flawed, right? Flawed and faithful. Jesus' response is even harder now than the first response he had given or the first thing he said. He said, truly, Peter, not only will you desert me this very night, but before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So not only are you going to fall away, you're going to deny you even know me, anything about me. And this is somebody that has spent so much time with him. I mean, like, can you imagine one of your best friends saying, yeah, tonight you're going to basically say you've never had anything to do with me. But I think that's, again, I think his impulsive nature just steps right in because immediately he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
And all the other disciples are in agreement. And they're like, yeah, same thing, right? And Peter has had such intimate times with Jesus. Peter has made big mistakes. Remember, Peter was convicted of sin after this great haul of fish. Peter had stepped out on the water but became distracted and began to sink. Jesus had shown him incredible kindness at both of those events. Peter may have believed the worst was behind him. It's not going to happen again. Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. I think Peter believed he was strong in this time. I think we, we, we oftentimes place a lot of value on strength, you know. I can fulfill what I'm going to say. I think he believed in himself. I think he thought he could do it. Maybe if I just try hard enough. But Jesus knew, knew Peter's heart better than Peter knew his own heart. Jesus knew that he had disbelief. It was only a little while, and this is kind of what's incredible, right, is that it was only a little while after Jesus was arrested that Peter grabs a sword and slices off a soldier's ear. That's bravery. But Jesus says, that's not my bravery. That's not my kingdom. That's not what I desire. So he fixes the guy's ear. He rebukes Peter. And then Peter, it's funny because all the disciples went away. But if you were to read the story, you notice Peter actually follows where Jesus is going. So he didn't completely scatter. He wasn't just gone. He was there. He was following at a distance. Kind of half in it, right? Still half in it. It's that half-hearted effort we make. Um, So that's the second thing, okay? The second passage. What is actually true? Um, That's the next thing I want you to look at. Peter is still operating in his good intentions and strength. And we know this because after Jesus has been arrested and the other disciples have scattered, Peter decides to follow Jesus to where he is being interrogated by the religious leaders and local authorities. Peter follows Jesus all the way up to the courtyards and he's witnessing the mockery, abuse, and poor treatment of Jesus. Like he saw it. The Peter who would not fall away, the Peter who will, even if he has to die, will never disown Jesus. And Peter is still nearby. While sitting in a courtyard, a servant girl approaches. This man was also with Jesus in Galilee. And Peter responds, I have no idea what you're talking about. Isn't that how we act when we get accused? I was thinking about this. You know, when your spouse or when somebody close to you says something about you and points a finger, a lot of times, what do we do? No, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Why would I do that? That's not me. And so he's kind of brushing this accusation aside. This first servant girl, he's just brushing her aside. I don't know what you're talking about. And that's how subtle a lot of times denying faith can be. Because that's where it starts, right? I was thinking, it's a little lie. I was protecting a friend. It doesn't affect me. Or it doesn't affect others, it only affects me. I'm the only one that's going to be impacted by this decision I make. I was only borrowing this item. Everyone says things like that when they're trying to get ahead. It's that subtlety. And so Peter here, right, he's not going to fall away. And as Peter removes himself from the servant girl, he heads towards the gate where he is approached by another servant girl. He says, you too were with Jesus of Nazareth. And notice... The first girl said Galilee, the second says Nazareth. It was just basically this idea that people had come from all over to celebrate the Passover. 
So that's why they were saying that, because these people were from more than likely different areas. And somebody had probably noticed Jesus in those areas and probably noticed Peter with him. So we might be thinking at this point, no need to hide, you aren't going to desert. But Peter exclaims with an oath, I do not know the man. And the frustration is mounting. Trying to remove himself even further, the whole crowd comes and says, your accent gives you away. Surely you are one of them. Because he had a very distinct Galilean accent, which would have been um, foreign to the area that they were currently standing in. And so at this time, Peter's frustrated, calls down curses on himself, swears that he does not know the man. And isn't it incredible that only a couple of weeks ago, he had just said, you are the son of God, when Jesus asked him who he was. And he said, the Messiah. And he had experienced this same Jesus who gave him successful catch of fish after he had a bad night working. The same Jesus who gives him a hand and puts him back in the boat when he starts to sink, when his faith was declining, when he tried to meet him on the water. The same Jesus who revealed himself on the Mount of Transfiguration was now the man. I do not know the man. Jesus, who had kept showing Peter this unmerited kindness, was reduced to this man in that moment. That's disowning. What was Peter thinking in this time? Maybe he was thinking, what if they knew the truth about me? Would I experience what Jesus has experienced? What if something happens to me? What if what Jesus said wasn't true? Because look at what he's going through. Because Galilee hasn't happened yet. They're living in the moment that he's going to die. So we can only see part of the story. We see both sides. We're at a kind of a benefit. So in what ways has Jesus done this for us? Has he pulled you out of an awkward or awful addiction and given you a new identity? Has he saved a relationship that looked all but over and then restored you to a better place? Has he met a great need that you need in a moment that seemed as dark as these passages? You couldn't pay your rent or you didn't have enough money to feed those that you loved, or you didn't know how you were going to get to work because you were paying bills and you didn't have the gas money to get there. Um, there's a million examples, and we start wondering that if we gave credit to God there, or if we started talking more about how God provided for us, what would the people around us think? Would they, would they start to think that we're not credible or that we're weird, that maybe we're going to make tinfoil hats and hone the aliens in? We recoil, right? We hide. We scatter. We make excuses. We're fickle. We're fickle in light of the goodness of Jesus. It's that same goodness that Jesus was held to the cross with. While our sin, shame, and the things that break us up were on him. And all the while he's dying, we're saying, I do not know the man. And at that moment in our story, the rooster crows and Peter runs outside weeping bitterly. And this is crying when we understand the truth of Jesus. We oftentimes believe truth about ourselves that looks more like the first passage, but the real truth is found in the second. 
Jesus is truthful and his words always come true. That's what I wanted to point out to you today. Jesus wasn't shocked by Peter's response or ours. And if we are to have any hope at all, we need to look at verse 32 in that first passage. After he has risen, he's going to go ahead of us to Galilee and we're going to meet him there. And our hope is going to be restored. We can only stop denying Jesus when we see his words being true, more than our words. Peter couldn't see the unbelief in his heart, but Jesus was aware of it. He was waiting for Peter to realize it. So weep bitterly like Peter and stop saying, I don't know the man. And live a life that says that man is alive and well. And even if I don't experience it in this moment, he has risen, which means it's true. I was thinking about what a relief it must have been when we look at, if you were to look at Matthew 28, right? When the disciples are reunited with Jesus. Everything they had experienced up to that moment, all that hurt, even the ways they had hurt him, right? That they were just with him again. Just how incredible that must have felt knowing the truth. So what do we do with this information? One, we should ask God to reveal the areas of unbelief. Admit your unbelief and fill your mind with what Jesus says about you from his word. Know that. Know his word. Know what it says about you. Our heads, our minds, if it's anything like mine, it says all sorts of stuff. And most of it's not true. And that's why we have to look to God and we're like, Jesus, tell me the truth about myself. Show me in your word what's true about me. And then two, if you've spent your whole life saying no, maybe this morning you see Jesus, this is goodness, in light of your denial. Be free. Put your hope and trust in Jesus, the Jesus whose words are true and always come true. If you've never done that, I want to invite you today that when our prayer team's over there and you're like, what does it mean to stop denying Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust Jesus' words? You could ask the person there. You could even come up to me in the back and you can ask me. I would love to tell you about Jesus because today Jesus could be inviting you to know him and to enter a real relationship with him where you get to celebrate what happened when they were together meeting up after his resurrection because Jesus is alive and his words are true for you today. Peter loves Jesus. Peter has moments of greatness followed by moments that are not so great. Peter is like all of us. In today's sermon, we talked about how some things can seem really dark, but the reality is Jesus knows what to do with the darkness. So while we have a tendency to deny Jesus and believe and say things that are often not true, what Jesus says and always says, or what he says and does, will always be true and always happens. So this week, instead of denying Jesus, let's go to Jesus and not only hear his words, but trust them because they are true. Pray with me this morning. Father, we just thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you that your words are true. We thank you that Jesus that he loves us, God, despite of our many flaws, Lord. We're thankful for a person like Peter where they wrote the accounts of his flaws that we can see what type of people God loves and uses. God, help us to
love you more as a result of that, Father. We just thank you. We praise you. In your son's name, amen. So I'd like to invite you to a time of communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, this was that same night where they had this conversation. Jesus was sitting with the disciples. And uh, he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body, which was broken for you. And when you eat it, you do so remembering me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant, this is the cup of the new covenant, which was made by the shedding of my blood. And when you drink it, you're proclaiming my kingdom until my return. So uh, I welcome you guys to do that this morning. Thank you.